<coughs> oh, oh, John. <coughs> oh, sorry, listeners of the future. Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Pretty good. You sound better than last time. Well, you know, Dan, I've been sick for three weeks, and I don't know how. I don't know what to do about it. It's uh, I'm I'm still coughing. I excused myself from a movie last night to go out into the lobby and cough. Oh my gosh! The last yeah. time I had like a a flu type thing, which is like what I think you had. It took, you know, the there was that week or so of just the fever part and the feeling like you just want to die part. And then there was another two weeks where I went of just slowly regaining strength and cough and a lot of coughing. And I like I like looked it up. And and they said that the cough and the the weakness and just lack of energy and cough and stuff can last like two more weeks. <coughs> oh, weakness, lack of energy. Is that oh. you? Is that what you got? I have all those things and more, Dan. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I have oh it's it's just it's not it's not good. I'm falling apart. But I don't wanna listen, I don't wanna bore you with talking about all these middle aged man problems. Oh, yeah. It would be you impossible know? for you to bore me. Well, you know, my dad and his friends used to sit around and talk about their prostates. What? All afternoon. Hello? All afternoon. <laughs> Am I still there? Yeah, what are you talking about? My my dad and his friends would sit around, uh, you know, a restaurant or something, talk for 45 minutes about their prostates. What what about them? Well, that's the thing. Who knows? Because I wasn't listening because I was rolling my eyes and going, you guys, fuck, come on. (laughs) Now you now, I bet you wish you knew. And now I wish I knew. Yeah. Because, you know, now I'm all of a sudden very interested in, I mean, I have nothing to say about my prostate, but I'm very interested in talking about it with somebody. Right. Someone who knows. Yeah. And so he and his pals just like, oh, yeah, well, and I used to, you know, I would sit and and laugh at them and yell at them. And my dad would say, one day, one day you'll know, one day you'll be sitting around talking about your prostate. And you know he said it with a laugh, but I but I felt like a gypsy curse. Yeah. Um. And uh, you know, and I, I guess every gypsy curse is said with a laugh. But uh, but yeah. So anyway, I mean, there should be a podcast of just two that. guys, two guys sitting around talking about their health problems. But let's not have it be this one. All right, I can respect that. Yeah. Ugh. Oh. Oh, it's so. Should bad. I leave no. those in or edit those out? Oh, you know, I mean, I, I have a cough button, as you know. No, I don't want you to use that. <coughs> oh, my God. No, no, no. Leave a, you know. I'll leave it in. Let's keep it real. Everybody should know by now that if if it's a podcast that I am a guest on or a principal of. Right. They should not be eating breakfast while they're listening yeah. because it's probably going to get gross at some point. Either gross mouth <laughs> sounds or talking about something gross. Or just just the grossness of well the inherent grossness of two middle aged men talking That's in the first place. that in and of itself is somewhat off putting when you yeah. say it like that. I wouldn't want to eat breakfast and listen to that. I've been following your Instagram. Speaking of gross things, yeah, and that you went by a place called the Great Bear Motor Inn. 
Yeah. And some other motels that look as if they've been destroyed. Yes. And then you posted a picture of sneakers on the hood of your v- uh, a vehicle. Ugh. What's where have you been? Super gross, right? Yes. <laughs> well, and if people don't follow you on Instagram, they really should because you never know what you're going to get. And it's, yeah, I'll put it into the show notes, but it's Instagram.com slash John Roderick on the web or just search for John Roderick, one word, on Instagram and follow him. 7,659 followers as as we speak. <coughs> yeah, well, they really love to see selfies because about half of what I put up there is selfies. It's great. And when you see them all taken together, this is the thing about all selfies, right? You see them all taken together and you're just like, oh, this is the collected work of a of a lunatic (laughs) but you know the selfies of people that are making duck faces all the time uh that seems crazy i'm always making sort of the same face which is which is like nonplussed right i don't it's not like i ever smile um (coughs) excuse me but and i've and i've gone on record many times saying listen if you're going to have an instagram account Particularly if it's one of those ones where you have you have imposed upon yourself some sort of theme, like I take pictures of manhole covers, or I'm the guy that has has pictures of salt shakers that look like pigs, or whatever you know, like yes. that type of thing. You've got to include a selfie periodically, so that we can know who the crazy person is behind this. You know what I mean? Like I you totally have to agree. Every- Every once in a while, seed your thing with a little bit of a picture of yourself so we know who we're dealing with. Now, of course, and I don't know if you saw this, but I happened to be browsing uh, Instagram and went to Michael Stipe's Instagram. And Michael Stipe's Instagram is the most curious, terrifying thing. Is it really? Because Michael Stipe takes selfies of himself with... like a a huge cast of enormously people, enormously uh, successful celebrities, famous people, uh, very, very uh, like a whole breadth of people from the popular culture. But he has quite a beard now, doesn't he? I didn't, I has quite a beard. He has a, he has a nose piercing, but now that you're looking at it, note this one thing, Michael Stipe centers every photograph on himself. Interesting. So that if he's taking a selfie with himself standing next to Bono, right, the photograph is centered on Michael Stipe and Bono is this little <laughs> shadow of a face kind of edging halfway into the screen. Yeah. So he, he obviously, <laughs> I his, see, I see the one you're talking about, right? His cell, his whole selfie theory <laughs> is I'm put, posting selfies that I've taken with all my famous friends and people I've met around the world. But they are all, every single one of them, almost completely cropped out of the frame. And it's just the same picture of Michael Stipe over and over and over, centered right on the tip of his nose. And this is clearly intentional on his part. No, that no? is the thing. It's, it is not an art thing that he's doing. It is just, I don't think that Michael Stipe has ever, under, has ever experienced a camera as anything other than something pointed at him to record him. Right. I I don't think there's any self-awareness in it. I think that he points the camera at him. It's like, it's a selfie. Get in this selfie with me. And he points the camera at himself. And the other person is, if they're really good at getting in close, you know, maybe they'll get half their face. Gosh, you were absolute. Look at this. Yes. It's insane. 
and I, and I, I've studied. And it you can and, also just study the the beard growth too <laughs> over the course of the last fifty photos. Yeah. So I I studied it until it until I started also to feel crazy, and then I had to get out of there. <laughs> but like, I, you know, I've met Michael Stipe uh, half a dozen times. I I know uh, I know Peter Buck pretty well. Right. We've played shows together uh, and have known each other for for, um, you know, what, 15 years, probably. And uh, and I love Peter. And but I know about those guys, about that band, that they are. I mean, they're definitely like a very quirky group of people. Mike Mills being the one that seems sort of the closest to a normal functioning person, mm-hmm. but still, I think a considerable distance from that goal. But this insight, just looking at this Instagram and this insight into Stipe <laughs> has given me tremendous pause. I just, yeah, this is the weirdest, <laughs> funniest thing. <coughs> well, I highly recommend that everybody go look at it. But yeah, I'll put also, I'll put a, a picture of it in the show notes. For also, sure. it's deeply troubling, and I mean, I, I I wanted to to have it. If 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 that Instagram account was David Byrne, I would say absolutely. David Byrne is intentionally doing that. Okay, as yeah, a, as an artistic comment on ego, or he's doing it just because he's a weirdo, and it's, right. a, it's some kind of RISD art installation. But, See, I, that's what I thought. That's what I thought you were seeing with with, with Michael Stipe doing it because he's he's an artsy, yeah. artsy fartsy kind of guy, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think that what I think if there's one thing about him that I know, it is that he does not have that kind of ability to comment on his own okay. ego. Okay, he would never. None of those guys. And if you look at the history of REM, you will see no sign of them ever engaging in self mockery. Interesting. You know, they're they're musically and historically like very self serious, right? They, they they it's like Radiohead doesn't self mock, right? Their music mocks people across the whole spectrum, but they don't. They never are the target of their own mockery. Whereas David Byrne throughout the course of his career, however self-serious that guy is, which is incredibly self-serious, but he was never afraid to make himself look ridiculous. Right. You think about, you think about the once in a lifetime video. Oh, yeah. He's perspiring and flopping around. <laughs> yeah, and, right, with the terrible sort of green screen, uh, you know, fish or ocean behind him. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, David Byrne in, in stop making sense with the giant suit. Like he, yeah. He was making himself a clown as a part of an art thing. And, you know, and then on the, all the way at the end of the spectrum is they might be giants whose, whose commentary on themselves and on ego is like absolutely threaded through everything they've ever done. Right. There's no, they are very serious about their work, but there's very little self seriousness that, that they, they don't also acknowledge. And, you know, in every band you kind of, I, uh, I try to look at and, and, and gauge that, right? Because like David Lee Roth, <laughs> superstar sex guy, but also no self-seriousness at all. Right. Always the clown, right? Right, right. And that was always a problem, I think, with Eddie Van Halen, who took himself very seriously. Mm-hmm. 
Then Sammy Hagar comes in very self-serious and all the, all the self-awareness went out of Van Halen that day. And all of a sudden, I think Eddie was much more comfortable in a band where there was no self-awareness, right? Yeah, where they yeah. were just like, we are rock stars and no green M&Ms or whatever. And it's not funny anymore. Whereas with Dave, it was to whatever degree, he was a huge pain in the ass and a, and a massive ego. He, he was, he was capable of mocking himself. Right. And seemed like he was just having fun. Yeah. And that's the difference between black Sabbath with Ozzy and without Ozzy, right? Ozzy, you could never, that's the crazy thing about early Black Sabbath. They are like all Satan and blah, scary, <laughs> brr, you know, blah, robots and brr. But then Ozzy is a fucking clown. And I think Tony Iommi probably through the whole career of Black Sabbath was like, oh, why did I pick this guy? Because if you, if you look at Tony Iommi, he never breaks character. He's always got an upside down cross. He's always got a Mephistopheles beard. He's always glaring at the camera. <laughs> and all the music is like, dum, dum, wow, wicked, dum. And then Ozzy's like, <laughs> like this kind of like chubby <laughs> dork that has the word Ozzy tattooed on his own knuckles. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I think self-seriousness is the enemy of cool rock and roll. But I, but I always loved REM and it's not the enemy of it is the thing. Cause there's so many great bands that, that are, you know, that are really serious. They're not kidding and they're great. So I, I have to, I have to rescind that as soon as I say it. Self-seriousness is not the enemy of great rock and roll, but, but definitely like, I don't know. There's some tension there. I feel like you have to be able to mock yourself a little. And I, I don't think Michael Stipe has that. I don't think he has that gene. <laughs> oh, coughing myself to death. I know. I, I feel almost guilty making you do a show. No, no, no. I know that you, you're one of these uh, people that's like, oh, my voice doesn't sound right. Cancel the show. But, you know, uh, yes, no one... I do. I do that. I do do that. But I want everybody to, you know. And I'll tell, I'll tell you why I do that. I've done it because back in the early days of, uh, of doing shows and stuff, whenever I would have a cold or do it when I had a cold, I would get tons and tons of emails, even oh. though I would mute out any kind of disgusting noises, just, you know, when I would sound like this, I would get so many emails from people telling me that I should have just not done this, done the show at all, that I sounded too bad. And because I, as you know, these shows that we're doing are evergreen. Yeah, that that's right. In, in five years, in 10 years, in 30 years, mm -hmm. people will still be coming back to this show, this episode of the show. 500 years, Dan. 500 years just to really, to for, for them to get an understanding on, you know, like what was going on in our time. Sure, they it's will, 21st century. Yeah, like. this this is the show for, for our time. And so I want it to sound like that. I want it to hold up, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't want... And and the, the, after the uh, World War Eight, and this mm -hmm. is the one thing of this, this era that remains, that they won't think, well, people just sounded like that back then, you know. 
that they'll yeah, know want, how, how we sound. To, I want them to know how fragile we were. Yeah. And also, <clears throat> I want this lingering cold to live on. Yeah. <laughs> right. Forever. I'll be healthy again <laughs> one day, but this cold will survive into perhaps into eternity. It'll be like graduation pictures, looking back on them sometime yeah. in the far distant right. or, future. Or, you know, maybe like, maybe this is, uh, maybe I have now made this particular virus immortal. Although oh, wow. all viruses are immortal because they just keep doing their weird virus thing that I still don't understand. Yeah. But you were asking about those Instagram pictures and <laughs> I realized that this might be not might be. I think this is absolutely something generational that has passed into history, which is uh, that stretch of motels. So like the motel. And by the way, I just not to interrupt you too much, but whenever I see photos of you outside of your natural habitat, in other words of like Seattle or your, your bedroom mirror or something like that, uh-uh. I, I get a little worried maybe you're traveling again and yeah. I'll, you know, I'll text you like we do in the show today and you'll text back. You'll be like, all right. I like I'm in Guam today. I forgot to mention it, but you know, right. and, and, and so I get, I get a little, I'm like, where is, where is he going? And, but at the same time, that's, that's the mystery of the show. Yeah. Right. Where is he? Where, where is, is he going to be? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, no, I'm in town, but I was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I was down by the airport. And so, uh, highway 99 is the famous North South highway of the West coast. And it used to run from Vancouver, Canada to Tijuana, Mexico. And it was, a it was a U.S. highway, sort of like route 66, where it was, it was at street level. There were stoplights on it and, but it was the main, oh yeah, it was the only route. If you wanted to go from Seattle to Portland or Seattle to Sacramento, Highway 99 was the route. And it was also kind of the main route through town, through every one of these towns. And during the rise of the the motor car as a form of transportation, like these big U.S. highways connected our country together. And along those roads, this culture of the motel uh, sort of grew naturally at the at the outskirts of a town on either side, north and south or east and west. These motels popped up because you're driving in on Highway 99 and here you come and and rather than drive all the way into town and get a room at one of the big downtown hotels, big fancy downtown hotel, you would stop on the outskirts of town, park your car at the the great bear motel (coughs) and it was affordable and it was, you know, it was part of American car culture. And so that's one of the things about route 66, right? You drive along there and you see all these remnants of car culture from the forties and fifties and sixties and even earlier, right? The thirties, like my mom drove from Ohio to San Diego and back with her grandparents in the mid to, I guess, late 30s uh, on Route 66. And, you know, you got, that was like the American neon culture, like the the signage is amazing, the architecture is sort of all amazing. 
And <clears throat> then they built the interstates. And in a lot of cases uh, in the North South route on the West coast, the interstate actually just went right over the top of highway 99 for great stretches of it. Like the old highway doesn't exist. And the same is true of route 66. The only remnants of it are little places where the, where the highway went around a town. Mm. And so, you know, if you're driving that, you kind of get on the freeway for a while and then you get off, you drive on some little stretch of route 66 as it goes through Las Cruces or something. And then you get back on the freeway because, because the, the old road doesn't exist. (laughs) Well, so here in Seattle, highway 99 is still a major North South thoroughfare through the town and really through this whole part of Western Washington, because when they built the freeway, they built it over uh, on the other side of the, of the city. And so 99 exists still. And also it's important to remember that in 1962, we had the world's fair here. And so that was this, the world's fair just attracted people from all over uh, North America. And so, wow, we got a lot of motels on both sides of town, just these perfect exemplars of the form, you know, the hotel with two story motel, like the kind where, where Martin Luther King was shot, you know, open balcony with a neon palm tree and all these things. Well, now this is the thing that, so this stuff started to pass into the, into history about 25 years ago. Because about 35 years ago, when the interstates were open and the and motel culture shifted to that kind of super eight motel that's at the cloverleaf, right? That are that like uniform mm-hmm. cookie cutter motels right. that are slapped together that are right at the exit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know it's bad when the, the you do the inhale and that's yeah. as sort of flemmy as the exhale. Wheeze. Yeah. Wheeze. I'm just <laughs> wheezing like a wheezy. <laughs> little Wayne. Mhm. Little Wayne, little Wheezy's, little Wheezy's cousin. <laughs> yeah. Um so so this is the thing that I think you will remember and I think a lot of our listeners will not which was when we were growing up, it was an era where there was a lot of street prostitution in certain parts of town. Very much. Where you would be driving down the street with your mom and dad and all of a sudden on both sides of the road, there would be innumerable women walking up and down the street dressed very scantily and cars pulling over and women leaning in the windows and this whole marketplace, sex marketplace happening just on the street at all hours of the day and night. And a lot of that uh, sex culture, prostitution culture happened precisely in the neighborhoods around these now decaying motels because the motels had cheap rooms available by the hour. And so this part of town was always the 
you know, when we were kids and into our teen years, the, in my imagination, they were kind of always extricable when you saw, when you saw the, um, or I'm sorry, they were inextricable. When you, when you saw the motel, you just Im- immediately started looking for the sort of street walking style of, of prostitute and all the Johns and all the creepy cars and so forth. And <clears throat> so as, as the internet came on, one of the first things that went onto the internet was sex work. Right. The day the internet opened, basically <laughs> all <laughs> street walking prostitution just disappeared. It just ended immediately. And there was a little bit of, there was a little interregnum where there were still people walking the streets, but but it, but like the the level of class had dropped precipitously, right? So the only the only people still working the street corners were people that were catering to a clientele that didn't have the internet, right? Or had never heard of the internet, right? right? It just got it got dirtier and dirtier. But then eventually it all went away. You never see somebody, you never see someone walking the street in a mini skirt, kind of twirling a little charm on a string or whatever. It's like, it's all gone. And. <coughs> oh, John. Oh, oh, sorry. Listeners of the future. I know that that is repulsive, <laughs> but hmm, what can I say? Here I am a professional podcaster and I'm giving you a cinema verite look into what it look basically what it sounds like inside me. <laughs> so. Long way of saying, Dan, that I was driving down Highway 99 by the airport, which was a, you know, for my whole life, a very colorful stretch. Right. You learn a lot driving down those streets. Yeah. Where everything used to happen. And when you're a kid, your nose is pressed to the glass (laughs) and you have a lot of questions about what's happening outside that mom and dad are sort of reticent to answer completely. And all these wonderful motels and this whole idea, this whole notion of like all the history that's in them, all the recent history that's in them, you know, it's just the last 60 years and it's, and it was so, the rise was so steep and then the fall was so steep. And here I am driving down and I see this whole stretch of these little motels just all being torn down because somebody came along and realized they could buy it. Uh, basically like four square blocks and tear it all down. And I'm sure they're going to put in some Home Depot or some Whole Foods or something that will, that, you know, instantly sanitizes and change and forever alters the whole idea of this strip. And even as I'm driving down it and looking around and seeing like the city has made a lot of improvements in the sidewalks here. And now all you see remnants of the past are like, well, there's a pawn shop and there's a kind of that thing used to be a motorcycle shop, but now it's a halal grocery store. And like the neighborhood has changed a lot in a lot of, you know, demographic ways. But here go all these motels. And as soon as they're gone, like the next person to drive down this street for the first time will have no conception of what this was ever. You know, they, it's, it will look as crazy to them 
as pictures of New York City with horse-drawn characters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Except even in those pictures, you can at least overlay the old picture with the new picture and still some of the buildings remain. Yeah. Yeah, But this is just like gone forever. And adding an extra layer to it was that this particular stretch of Highway 99 and these exact motels and the prostitution culture that kept them alive was the hunting ground of Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. These were, he lived in this neighborhood just three blocks off of Highway 99 and these motels and the, and the women that worked the street here were his victims. And so, so I don't know, I'm looking it up right now, but I don't know the story of Gary Ridgway at all. Gary, Gary Ridgway and the Green River Killer. I think he is pretty widely regarded as the most prolific American serial killer. Why do I not know about him? Gary uh, Leon Ridgway. Mm-hmm. He, um, like if you put the word green into Google, Green River Killer is the fifth uh, thing that pops up. Wow. Right? I mean, that, just I, mean, for I the, thought I knew my serial killers, I guess. Not. Just for the word green. I mean, he's <clears throat> he was convicted, I guess, of like 50 killings and but suspected of a lot more. And growing up here in the Northwest in the 70s and 80s, like the Green River Killer was was the ultimate boogeyman because they never they didn't catch him for decades and he he was he he seemed to be everywhere he just was he was taunting the cops and and in retrospect it turns out that you know we all thought that he was like this master evil like dracula figure but what it turned out was that he was a he was a total idiot like you know, a guy with a 70 IQ or something that worked as a truck painter. He just got away with it because I don't know why nobody knows why, you know, Bundy had a, had 140 IQ. Right. Um, and in the end that didn't help him. No, but this guy was just this dumb dipwad that, just killed and killed and killed. And this was this exact stretch where these pictures I took on Instagram, where it was just ground zero for that. And people in the Northwest spent just years and years and years sort of churning over this very stretch of 99. And you couldn't drive down it without seeing girls working the street and also thinking about the green river killer and wondering when he would strike again. And, um, and so watching these motels get torn down, you know, you don't want to like feel, you don't want to, you know, feel nostalgia for the Green River Killer. Right. But it also is some, you know, it's some massive flag planted in my emotional landscape, my childhood landscape, that to, to see these motels go and then be replaced by a Lowe's. Mm-hmm. It's more like a, almost a documentation, visual documentation project you've undertaken. Well, just, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was really opportunistic. If I had come by there a week later, those places would be gone. 
And if I had gone by a week earlier, they would just be boarded up motels of which there are tons, right? I wouldn't have said like, oh, what a pity those motels are boarded up. It's like they kind of belonged boarded up. Right. I just never thought that they'd be all torn down at once. And, you know, there was a, there was a brief period in the early, early to mid nineties when I was kind of, I had just enough resources that I, you know, I, I, I guess this is what we're talking about late nineties when I had a car for the first time. Right. And I was, you know, seeing girls. And at one point I start, I, and I'm, I'm sure that this is fairly commonplace among hipster dinglings like I was. <laughs> but I got into this mode where I was like, Hey, why don't we, uh, why don't we go get a motel room on the, oh. uh, out on 99. And what would the response be to that? Well, you know, typically, uh, the rock and roll girls. That this was like a nice, that'd be like a nice date for them. Well, no, no, they, they got the kitschy, uh, like sort of like the, the appeal of being a little bit scummy or, you know, like it was there, it wasn't dangerous exactly, but it was definitely a little bit like, Oh my God, we're going to go get a motel room on 99. Like right. I, that's kind of dirty. And then it'd be like, yeah, it is kind of dirty. <laughs> So there was a while where I went and tried to stay the night in all of these different places, the Thunderbird Motel and the, you know, the, I never stayed at the Great Bear, but, you know, the Palms and all these weird places that still had their original decor, but had just fallen so far like if some of them you would walk in and it was like the original decor, the original curtains, everything kind of, kind of gray and, you know, the bed just sort of so, so used that there was no spring left in it. I mean, it was, a, it was very, it was very much a kind of tourism, like dark side tourism. Yeah. But we were 26 and, it, and poor. Right. So if you didn't want to, if you didn't want to make out in her apartment with her roommate in the next room, yeah. you know, for $25, you could go get a, go get a room at the Thunderbird, but they've, the Thunderbird's torn down, right? Like the, all the, all of them little by little are getting torn down. And what's crazy is it feels like it's just ripe for people my age to start buying these places, fixing them up mid-century, modernizing them and turning them into $200 a night hotels oh, right. for people who are like, yeah, like you know, nostalgia, people who, are, people who are nostalgic for a thing that they never experienced firsthand, which is like the popular, the popularization of mid-century modern as a, as a style it's really popular with a generation of people that never experienced it firsthand, right? Or that only knew it like their grandparents lived in a place like that. Or, you know, they, they, it, it was aesthetically reintroduced to people as a, as a sort of like, this is, it's both old 
so it's cool, but it's also new and modern. Mm. It at one point was touted as modern and still feels kind of modern. So you get to have the you get to have modern amenities, but it's also vintage. And that's you know, these motels kind of are and maybe it's maybe as car culture morphs into whatever it's gonna be next, this the these car centric businesses and and right. strip malls and stuff will start to take on a a different cast i don't know anyway i saw these things and i was like oh my god I, i'm having a very complicated reaction to these motels getting torn down we would like to say thank you to wealthfront an automated investment service they're managing nearly three billion dollars in client assets what does that mean in plain english it means Wealthfront exists to make it easier for people like us to get access to sophisticated, diversified, long-term investment portfolio advisement. That's a mouthful, but basically it means you can take as much money as you want, a little bit or a lot, and you can chuck it in a bucket. And Wealthfront will manage this money for you. They don't charge any trading commissions, and they're completely free for accounts normally under 10000 bucks, But... If you use this URL, accounts under 15000 bucks, they will manage it for you entirely free of charge for life. So you're not going to pay commissions, you're not going to pay hidden fees, and you won't pay any management fees. Normally, you're, you're going to pay with, with somebody else, with an old-fashioned like a money manager. You're going to pay upwards of 1%, 2% per year. That eat, really eats away at the money you're trying to save. With, uh, with Wealthfront, once you go over that 15k, it's only 0.25%. That's it. it does, and also, it doesn't matter. You can start out with a few hundred bucks, a few thousand bucks. You don't have to be a millionaire to get access to this really, really impressive intelligence that they have that balances and rebalances your portfolio all the time, making sure that the money that you have is invested and reinvested in a way that grows for you, saves you money on taxes. They've got it all figured out. And that's, that's the way I like to invest because I, I don't have time. I don't have time to try and figure this out. I just want to take a little bit of money and say, you know what? Here, make it, make it increase. Make it better. And that's what they do. Wealthfront.com slash 5x5. That's where you go to sign up and get that first 15K managed entirely free. Wealthfront.com slash 5x5. Thanks very much to them for making this show possible. And it feels like a coffee table book that somebody should have already been making because so many of these hotels are gone now. That if 10 years ago, some, someone, and I'm sure someone did, right? Just travel around taking pictures of all the old motels. Right. All the old motels in their decay, in their, in their late stage decay. That would be an amazing coffee table book. I'm, I'm not going to Google it because I'm sure it's there and I'll be mad. I think, you're, I think you're the one to do it. You could do it right. Well, it's too late, Dan. They're all, all, They're all gone. I wouldn't be able to put the Great Bear Motel in there, for instance, because it's gone. Torn down. Well, you wouldn't have to be the photographer. You could go and acquire these photos and just be, oh, be the one who, to document, collect, and annotate them and, and assemble them together. Mm. Almost as if you, know, you, were, you were just going through the, the great archives of what's been created. And then you could, you could do the overlay with what's there in the modern day with, with your own photos. I, you know what? I am the right guy for that. And if there's anyone listening to this program who either personally or knows someone who has taken pictures of 
the motels of America in their late stage decay, by all means, email me. Do you want to start in a certain area of the country? No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I know the motels of the West. Yeah. I'm sure that there, I mean, there are so many motels in America and so many of them that have been in decay for decades and will never get torn down because they're on the outskirts of some town in Indiana that's it isn't going to get redeveloped for another 50 years. Like if you wanted to go out and document the motels of America, you could drive yourself crazy. You could do, you could spend 15 years on this quest, but I, you know, like the, give your, the, you would give your life a purpose, not yours. I'm right. saying the person who wanted to, no, to do it's that. absolutely true. It might even give my life a purpose. <laughs> I think you have one, <laughs> but just the ones from Vancouver to, from Vancouver, BC to Redding, California. I mean, that alone would be an amazing cocktail or an amazing, you know, coffee table book because they're not just, they're not just limited to highway 99. They're out on highway one. They're on highway 101. Like they're everywhere that everywhere that highways were built. So two were motels, but you know, I don't feel there's a part of me that feels like, Oh, maybe I would be a good hotelier. You know, maybe if I bought a, old motel somewhere and turned it into a quirky kitschy boutique hotel. Right. That there'd be something about sitting behind the front desk of a motel that I owned and every day welcoming new guests. Hello. Welcome to fantasy Island. Yeah. Fantasy motel. I think you'd uh, make it, you'd run a really good hotel. Right. And make it sort of a destination where yeah. people are, like I'm not going there because I because I want to go to that particular place. I'm going there because it's John Roderick's quirky hotel. I always thought of you more as like running a tackle shop hmm. than a hotel, but I could see that. Yeah, I feel like the real great tackle shops are. I mean, that's another thing that's that's going away. Yeah, it is. There's a tackle shop. This is the I have never been in there and. I can't believe I'm about to talk about it because I, because I feel like it's now going to, it's going to force my hand. What to go in? Yeah. Because very, very close to the center of, of Seattle on Rainier Avenue at, uh, basically at King street on the outskirts of Chinatown, there is a tackle shop that still exists. It's open every day. The windows are so dusty and dirty that you can barely see in. Mm -hmm. It has not been, I think, modernized since the 1940s. Wow. And it makes no sense to me at all. Like who is patronizing this tackle shop <laughs> in the center of town? Like, the, and the only reason I think that it still exists is that this little stretch of real estate remained unappealing to anyone else. You know, there was no, there was no pressure on it to redevelop it. And so this little tackle shop just, just puttered away, but has to be a labor of love of one person. He's got to have employees, so there's got to be four or five 
what I presume to be old men mm-hmm. who love fishing. <laughs> and like, who the fuck is fishing in that style around downtown Seattle? Like, I don't, I can't even picture if you go out of town and you're in some little town on the outskirts of Seattle and you see a tackle shop. Well, sure. Guys are fishing in the rivers or, yeah, you know, in the lakes around, but downtown who, who downtown is like, you know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to go talk to somebody about my fly tying. But then I, uh, the, uh, the culture of, of like fishermen, I've, I've never fully understood anyway. But this tackle shop is not near any of the other fishing infrastructure of which there is a ton in Seattle, right? There are whole portions of the town given over to commercial fishing, fishing as an industry. This tackle shop is nowhere near that. It's basically in little Saigon. Was it when it was built? Like, was it a more correctly located place? Or was it, would it have been weird in 1945 also? No, because Rainier Avenue used to be the one of the two or three main routes out of town to the south. So Rainier is what you would get on. Let's say you're in your 1939 Chevy and you're headed south. You're going to Mount Rainier. Let's say you're going to Mount Rainier, Dan. You're going to go up there, yeah. going to fish some of those high lakes, yeah. you're going to camp out in your canvas tent. You would head south on Rainier Boulevard. Okay. And ever since the freeway was built, you wouldn't head south on Rainier Boulevard. You know, ever since 1960, let's call it 66, you would just go south on the freeway. But up until 1966, yeah, Rainier would have been your exit route and this would have been right on the you'd be this tackle shop would be basically as you left town on your way through the sort of suburban south end here was this tackle shop and you could pull over and get your worms or whatever you get in a tackle shop lead weights yeah weights you get your fishing line bobbin Get a bobbin, get a little bucket hat with some flies on yep, it. Yep. Um, Your waiters. <clears throat> so I guess, yes, 50 years ago, this tackle shop, like the premise of it, I guess, was there was some logic to it. But how has it survived? If a motel can't survive, how can a tackle shop? What is his monthly rent? And what is his nut? What does he take in? How much can, what is the most expensive thing you can sell at a tackle shop? A, a reel? Yeah, I got to think a reel. A really nice reel? A nice rod. A canoe? Would they have a canoe in there? Oh, I don't think it's any kind of sporting goods store. Okay, just it has, purely it, what you're going to hold in your hand as you're out there fishing. The big, big sign covered with dirt on the front of the store just says, Tackle. <laughs> it just feels like one of those like guns and gas type of places like guns, gas and grits. Yeah. Who, what the hell is this place? So anyway, now that I've spoken of it, 
I've been looking at this place seriously for 25 years. Oh, you got to go in. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Go in there. But I'm, I, I don't know. I'm afraid I'm going to go in and just like get into a conversation about fishing. What would be so bad about that? Well, I don't know what to say about fishing. I think I would go in and they'd be like, howdy. I'm just presuming. I yeah. mean, this is. You think they're, te- they're relocated Texans? Or, well, no, howdy, I think, is a general term that you say when someone walks into a tackle shop. Yeah, right? maybe, maybe. You're not going to say, like, not good like day, howdy, sir. Howdy, partner. Just howdy. No, not howdy, partner. Yeah. No, come on. <laughs> come on, everybody would stop and scowl. <laughs> if you said partner. Yeah. There's a guy who <laughs> opened a barbecue restaurant here in Seattle. Oh, yeah? Named Jack. And he opened a barbecue place just recently called Jack's Barbecue. And he is from Austin, Texas. Nice. <laughs> and Jack is a very handsome guy. Tall, lanky, cowboy build. Right. Everyone in Texas is beautiful. Yep. And he, he saunters around his store. And he opened this barbecue place. And up until that point, there were barbecue places in Seattle. You know, like a, a very small constellation of, let's call it, five barbecue places. But they were all... And I don't want to get into this with you. I'm just, I'm just talking as a layman. No, I'm, I know where you're going with this. But they were all St. Louis style barbecue. Okay. Yeah. And they were all run by African Americans. Yeah. And they were very, like, very hot, but very saucy barbecue. Sure. And, that, is, that is the style. Yeah. And when people in Seattle wanted to go get some barbecue, they'd go over to Bellevue uh, or they'd go down to the South end and they would get this, you know, this saucy, hot St. Louis style barbecue. And so Jack, this like lanky cowboy opened up Jack's barbecue, which is in a, which is in a location that is not really, it's not, a, it's not in a restaurant district. It's just sort of out. Uh, on, on a stretch where there are no other places to eat. No one ever even slows their car down on that stretch of road. He opens this place in what, in a restaurant that used to be called Bogarts. <laughs> and Bogarts was a place that after you got off work, you'd go get a shift drink or something. You'd go get a, you'd go get a, a beer after work and everybody else in the place had a, had a boiler suit on, but there inexplicably was also uh, karaoke. Right? You know, just one of these bars that was like, what the hell kind of bar is this? Jack came in, he opened this place, and immediately he was fulfilling a need that no one realized they had. And Jack's Barbecue, from the moment it opened, was full every minute. I mean, they open the, they turn on the open sign, and there are already 60 people in the parking lot waiting to get in. It's full constantly, so that he had to change his hours oh, to man. accommodate these people he bought this he expanded the thing right away he bought this huge huge barbecues that are back behind the store where he's just roasting brisket 24 hours a day right and jack just sort of saunters through his restaurant and he turns up the fucking texas so loud he'll walk over to your table and be like Howdy, y'all. How you doing today? You know, oh, thanks man. for coming in to Jack's Barbecue. And you're like, is that even real? Are yeah. you even? But he is. He's totally real. But he also knows that by turning up the Texas real loud, 
it's just like opening a British pub and walking around with this like very exaggerated, uh, like Cockney bar. Yeah. Bartender voice. Yeah. He's got this, he's got this Texas thing and, um, and he is the rare restaurateur that is an instant, enormous success. Yeah. And, he, and, and what he's making is very uncomplicated. He's just doing it a particular way. Like, so anyway, he serves this food with no sauce. Mm-hmm. On it. And if you want sauce, you can, but he prides himself on like, the, it's all in the, yeah, the Texas style is all the rub. It don't need sauce. That's right. So in a place like that, I would absolutely walk in and expect to be greeted. Howdy partner. Mm-hmm. Partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. P-A-R-D. But, but in a tackle shop, I think that they, I think that they might say howdy. Um, but they would presume I was there to buy tackle or to have to do something with, to buy something to have to do with fish, fishing. And I would just be walking in as a, as, as like a anthropologist. And when someone, you know, when I walk into a place as an anthropologist and someone says, howdy, uh, like unselfconsciously, I just immediately feel like a, like a sex tourist or like, um, <laughs> Oh, hi. I'm just looking. You're just looking who browses at a tackle shop. Oh, oh. I, th- I think, I, I, I think you've got that wrong. I mean, Is that right? yeah, I've spent a lot of time in, in tackle shops for better, for really? worse. Really? Well, back in my Florida days, we used to have a lot of tackle shops and my stepdad was very, very into fishing and there is no kind of pointless fishing like Florida fishing where you just sort of, you have all your crap and you just sort of go and, well, there's a pier over there. So you just drive to the pier and you climb down where the rocks are and you sort of just sit there or stand there and just fish directly in, into the ocean. Mm-hmm. the theory being that it's a pier and this is farther out in the ocean than you would be if you just stood on the shore. Right. And I guess theoretically fish are attracted to the pier because there's creatures living in it that they, maybe they want to eat or whatever. This is more thought than I've ever put into it. And yeah. Yes, I'm following. And so you would, you would go to the tackle shop on your way to the pier and the tackle shop, the ones in Florida, it you know, because it was all, it was, the majority of it would be salt, you know, salt water. Yeah. And because it would be more beach or pier fishing. I mean, there are plenty of lakes in Florida too, of course, but you know, I think, I think most of the fishing I was exposed to was salt water. So you would, uh, you would go to the tackle shop and you'd buy your bait, which usually was shrimp, live shrimp that you would have to put on the hook and, and you know, that's, you'd cast your line and, and go fishing and so the, the fish are out there on the pier eating shrimp 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 and then you would take a live shrimp and stick it on a hook and throw it in the water and right. the shrimp would well no the fit you're not catching shrimp you're catching hopefully fish right but uh, but the would the shrimp With stay shrimp. alive once yeah you... yeah i mean they 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 stay alive for a while but it's not it's nothing like i mean there's no I mean, I'm probably going to get email about this, but there, I will say compared to the very, very limited fly fishing that I've done and a bit more lake fishing that I did when I used to live up north, 
there's no art or craft to pier fishing. It's more you put bait on a hook and like submerge the hook into the water one way or another and, and reel it back in and just you do that until something bites it. I see. It's very basic. It's not a river runs through it where you're No, out. no. Oh, well, great movie. Perfectly putting your little hand-tied fly into the little no. shallow. This is, I, 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 I put my hook through the shrimp and I, I cast it. And uh-huh. nothing bit, so I reeled it back. And I did uh-huh. that all night. That's Florida fishing. And I will tell you, though, that at least in the tackle shops, there's a, a heck of a lot of browsing around and just just sort of milling about talking looking mm-hmm. at looking at weights different mm-hmm. weights you might want to mm-hmm. put on your line what tension of line you might want to do and Nothing. you're saying that the that the fishing itself requires no skill no there's no there's no way there's i mean you could spend i think decades fly fishing and still not be very good at it and still have a lot to learn but i feel like fishing off a pier even you know the most basic like a like a child with no who's never done it before could ca- could catch as much as somebody who's been doing it for their whole life there's no skill there's no craft there's no art to it and uh and but in these tackle shops they they're almost like the like the barber shop in an old new york italian neighborhood right. you know like it becomes a place that people will go men of a certain age and inclination will go to just sort of just talk to like-minded or not talk or just mill about and be with people who, who also don't want to talk, but who share the same interest. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know what a Portland tackle shop or I'm sorry, a Seattle tackle shop would be like, but well, I feel there's a like a lot you, of freshwater fishing here. You know, I, I feel uh, like you could, you could have some fun in there. What I, I'll tell you what you could go in there and say, I, I've never really been into fishing, but I, I want to learn. And I figured this was the place to start. Oh, Jesus. Come on. I think you need to do it just for the listeners, just so that they can see what would happen. Yeah, I may want to do that. I, I, I went into a gun shop one time and I had my dad's service revolver. Yeah. Or not revolver. Oh, Jesus, what am I saying? His service pistol, which was not a revolver, but right. it wasn't automatic. It was wrapped in a little towel, and I went into this gun shop, which was down on First Avenue in Seattle. And this was, again, one of these last remnants, right? First Avenue in Seattle used to be pawn shops, gun shops, bars full of sailors, and, and like, sex shops. Um, girls dancing behind glass. Uh, you know, there was a magic shop down there that I used to go to as a kid, like a little magic shop that was tucked in between a girls dancing behind glass store and a gun store. And that was first Avenue. It was, and I think that was true of the first Avenue of a lot of towns in America in the seventies. It was just like the, the word for the term first Avenue was just synonymous with like, well, that's going to be the scummiest street in town in Anchorage. It was fourth Avenue. Uh, Do you remember what the, what the scummy street in your town was? not front street state uh, street it's usually something it's like yeah i mean i don't i don't really remember because i was a little i was a little bit kept from going to that especially in philadelphia like 
Oh, right. Center City was not like a like a ten year old kid was not gonna <coughs> not gonna be down there. You yeah, well, I mean? and, like, and, that and the was, reason the reason that I was was my mom worked down at the at the King County Courthouse, and we lived in the northern suburbs. And at a certain point, what? How old would I have been? Eight. When I was, uh, yeah, seven or eight, my mom took me from our house. We rode the, we got on the bus that was at the corner. We rode the bus to the transfer station. We got on the next bus. We rode that bus to downtown to the, the Bon Marche and we got off at the Bon Marche and then got on a third bus that took us all the way down to Pioneer Square where she worked. And she, she walked me through that and then she said, okay, now do you know how to do this? And I was like, I do. She said, okay, do you think you could do this with your sister who was five or six? And I was like, yes, I think so. And she said, okay, good. And then periodically I would get, I don't remember what the circumstances were, but periodically I would make this trip where after school or something, I would take my sister who was a little girl and I would get us both on the bus and get it, get transfers for us. And of course, when anyone sees, even back then, when anyone sees an eight year old and a five year old on the bus, they get protective of them. Sure. And we would take the bus to the transfer and we would transfer to the other bus and we'd get downtown. And at the point at which we got to the Bon Marche and now we're in downtown Seattle, it's 1976 or, or so. And downtown is very scary, very freaky scene. And sometimes we would take that third bus and sometimes we would get off at the Bon Marche and my mom would meet us there. But then we would, you know, we were in that part of town sort of unescorted and I was in charge of my sister. So I had a, I had a lot, I felt like I had a lot of responsibility. Right. And we navigated this sort of downtown scene to get down to Pioneer Square, which was also a very like sketchy Mm -hmm. scene at the time. Because, you know, our mom was a single parent and yeah. that this, this was necessary for some reason periodically. I don't remember why or, but, but, you know, she had walked me through it. I understood the process and then it became, you know, not, it wasn't, it wasn't like once a week or anything, but it became a kind of thing that, that periodically I had to do. <coughs> so I was downtown quite a bit already. And then when my dad would come to town, <coughs> <clears throat> he had no, my dad kind of had no filter. So sure. Sailor bars and magic shops and, and titty bars or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What the hell? You know, he'd take me into those places and sit me down at the bar and he'd say, all right, don't move. I'll be back in a half an hour. But, uh, all of that is gone now, but there, the, one of the last remaining places, there were two places that held on. There was a place called the lusty lady which was a strip club that was owned by women. And so it was kind of one of the, one of the first places that really took that kind of sex positivity and like 
overt female sexuality and right. said, that's right, we're running a strip bar <laughs> and it's empowering <laughs> and go fuck yourself if you don't like it. And so the Lusty Lady was this place. I knew a lot of people that worked there. It was like if you were 22 and coming to town, wanted to get your start, make a little money, you could work at the Lusty Lady for a while. I mean, it was never that quite that casual, but, right. but it was a place that you could dance and make money if you, you know, if that was something that you're inclined to do and it was a safe space rather than a, you didn't have to go into some kind of scene where you immediately felt in danger. Like the, it was, and it was, it was a cool, it was a cool peep show in the sense that if you were like one of the, if you were in that class or in that culture where you might potentially be dating one of the dancers, right? you could go to the peep show and feel cool about it and not like a, like a creep that's at a peep show. Sure. So we would go down and, you know, and kind of feed our quarters into the slots and the little window would open up like in that Madonna video. Oh yeah. It was exactly like that. Really? You'd put your quarter, you'd go into a little booth, you'd put your quarters in the slot and then this metal door would slide open. And then you're looking in at the girls dancing in this big room. And as soon as the door slides open, the girls would say, Oh, you know, they'd come over and start dancing for you. Right. And half the windows were clear so that they could see you uh-huh. and half of them were mirrored. So they, they would know that somebody was there. The, the door would slide open and they would be aware that, ah, there's a new customer here, but they couldn't see you. You're would would you be able mirror. to choose which one you were yep. going into? Yep. 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 From, from the other side, when you're choosing which door to go into the little room, it's like this one, she can see you and this one, she can't. And depending on what type of guy you were, you either wanted to be in a little mirrored room where she can't see you and you can just see her or you want definitely for her to see you, you know, depending right. on, on what who you were you planning to do in there. The lusty lady survived until, until really recent memory. The entire street had been gentrified right up to its earlobes. And here was this lusty lady just right in the center of it, right across the street from the Seattle Art Museum, you know, the new museum that the, that the rich benefactors of Seattle had paid millions and millions and millions of dollars to build and populate with Rothko's and so forth. And then right across the street, there's this, there's this seedy little strip club. Pretty great. And I was sorry to see it go. But it's gone. It's gone now, but the thing to go right before that was this gun shop. Has anything replaced it? Yeah. Little art galleries that sell hand-carved bowls made out of burl wood, and the bowl is meant for some fruit or bananas or something, and it costs $900. And then behind that, there's like a globe made out of semi-precious stones. I mean, just like shite, right? Expensive downtown shite that you would find in any downtown. Uh, Nothing good has replaced those things. Just more shite. Just just Wolfgang Puck's hand-fired pizza Mm. and uh, a North Face store and some stuff that 
nobody cares about. You drive down First Avenue now and you're just like, yeah, I'm in anywhere USA. But I went into this gun shop with my dad's 1911 model Colt pistol, automatic pistol. And there's all these guys sitting behind the counter and it's the same story. The, the place is dark. It's musty. People are smoking cigarettes in there still. Yeah. Guns all over the place. And kind of, you know, like an overweight guy in suspenders sitting <laughs> on a stool behind the counter. Right. And I walk in and I unroll this little hand towel and I say, here's my dad's gun. I don't know anything about it. Can you help me? And right away, there are now three or four guys who come out of nowhere, right. crowd around the one guy. And they're all talking about the gun right away. Oh, wow. Look at this. What do you know? Hey, look at him. And the guy says, well, let me tell you what. This gun is an original 1911 model that would have, because it said property of the U.S. Navy stamped on it. And he said, this was issued to your dad in World War II? And I said, yeah, he, you know, joined the Navy in 42. And the guy said, well, this gun's a lot older than that. And it would have been manufactured pre-World War I. Wow. And somehow must have sat in a Navy supply depot all those years waiting to be issued to somebody and it finally got put into circulation in 1942 when they gave it to your dad. And I was like, well, seriously? And he's like, yeah, this is like, this is first gen. And it would be worth a lot of money. And I was like, oh, no, don't tell me what. What do you mean would be worth a lot of money? He said, it's already a very collectible gun. It's a very nice gun. Don't get me wrong. But at some point, clearly in the 1970s, your father had it re-blued. What does that mean? Where they resurface it? Yeah, the finish had decayed, and he took it in to somebody, and at the time, um, they were like, oh, you know, finish is kind of worn off, you know. The thing to do now is to get it re-blued. That'll... that'll uh, you know, put the, bring the life back to it. And so this guy in the gun shop is like the rebluing job was excellent. Like it was done by a true professional, right. beautifully done. But in having it reblued in the seventies, which is absolutely a normal thing to have done. He ruined the collectability oh, of it. Right. It's no longer a, an authentic original piece. Yeah, so instead of being a $50,000 gun or whatever, <laughs> it's like whatever it is, it's $5,000 gun or something. Right. Instead of, uh, it's just like, oh, it's your 59 Les Paul, but somebody in 1974 sanded the finish off mm. and painted it black because right. they want to be rock and roll. Right. And so <clears throat> rather than be a million dollar guitar, now it's a half a million dollar guitar or right. something. The refin steals the value. But so these guys sat there and he, he took the gun and immediately just disassembled it. And I was like, that's amazing. Right. What did you, I mean, he just did it like by memory, uh, by, by, uh, by feel, by feel, right. That's, that's by unconscious memory. He just, and the amazing thing about this day 
was that he sat, he pulled up a stool for me on the other side of the counter and he sat and walked me through teaching me how to disassemble and reassemble this gun. And he showed me and then he had me do it. And then he showed me again and then he had me do it until I was pretty good at it. He was like, you know, you disassemble it, then you clean it like this, you oil it like this. This is how you basically, this is what you do. This is how you care for your gun. This is what you do with it. Did he and time you or anything? No, no, no. It wasn't. It wasn't some. Uh, it wasn't some Full Metal Jacket scene, right? Because that, that's what I'm picturing. <laughs> yeah. what I'm picturing. He, I wasn't born again hard at the <laughs> end of the process, <laughs> but he did. He did take this time. He wasn't trying to sell me anything. It was like the tackle shop, right? He was just sitting there on his stool. Maybe they sold a few guns every day. There were a bunch of them working there. They were that old school kind of gun crowd. It was before the NRA became an insane asylum. You know, before the national conversation turned into this, like either you are pro gun, in which case you, you make, you have no complaints about gun ownership at all. If you are pro gun, you are, entirely pro-gun and believe that machine guns should be in our schools and (laughs) there should be no restrictions or limitations whatsoever on gun ownership. People should still have to get driver's licenses, but they should have no trouble buying bazookas. Right. Or you are anti-gun, in which case you want no guns. You believe all guns should be eliminated. You know, like there's no middle ground anymore where you can just say like, what do you mean pro-gun, anti-gun guns are guns if you want a gun you should have a gun but you should probably be able you should probably have to have a license for it you should probably have to take a class even it's not that much of a burden you know this weird what now seems like a weird place to be which is this this enormous middle place like, yeah guns are just things you know like they're just they're just machines that people made and yeah what's the big deal and so this was a gun shop then where there wasn't anything political about it. You know, if you go, if because I still go to gun shops, and if you walk into one now, there's a 99% certainty that there's going to be on the wall a target of Bin Laden. Right. And then a target of, o- not Obama, because that kind of would be illegal. Yeah. But, you know, a target of Bin Laden, a target of some, like, you know, uh, ethnic looking guy, bad guy pointing a gun at you that you're trying to shoot. And then some bumper stickers to the effect of thanks Obama or, you know, not my president or whatever. Like every gun shop now is so politicized, but these gun, this particular gun shop wasn't, there wasn't, there were no politics in it at all. Maybe there was, maybe there was some sort of POW MIA, flag that would be the that would be the most political thing in there and so there was no you know there was no tension being in there and this guy was just sitting on a stool and he took an hour and a half out of his day to teach this kid right. about his dad's gun right it's pretty cool and i still think about it and i and watching that store close was another sort of blow like oh the 
none of those guys, it's not like they're going to go open another gun shop, right? They were all in their 70s, 60s or 70s. When this store closed, it's just over. It's over. Right. And, the, and the people that opened a new gun shop on the edge of town are all young dudes with dime bag Daryl beards who are, you know, who are part of this, uh, like Dodge Ram 3500 diesel truck with the, with the giant smokestack culture. Yeah. And you know, something just, it's like the tackle shop guys just passed into history. Except damn, there's this, still this tackle shop. You've got, how can you not go it? This seems like the kind of place you'd go at weekly. That's the thing I knew. And I said it when I started talking about it, I was like, I don't want to start talking about this yeah. because now I, now I have talked myself into an obligation to go to this place. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to go because I didn't. How many places are there in town that, that you've been avoiding this way? Well, not that many. And that's, a, but the thing is I sometimes struggle with being a cliche of myself. <laughs> What do you mean? Well, <laughs> you know, I used to go to the Filson store all the time because it was a place where. Yeah, you told you told me I have to go to the Filson store. Well, I used to think that um, because it used to be a place where a bunch of old Alaskan guides were and people sitting around people who whose wax cotton jackets smelled like cigarette smoke and their wool pants had a stain on them, which was clearly deer blood. And there would be just a kind of bunch of guys leaning on the counter talking about, uh, like hunting bear and these clothes were bulletproof. And it just seemed like I was a place that I like this, like this imaginary tackle shop or the gun store where I would just kind of go. And it's like the barbershop thing that you're talking about where I just sort of bask in, this outdoorsy masculinity that was lacking elsewhere. Right. And, and a remnant of an earlier time and my dad's generation and these people that had never embraced Gore-Tex or polypropylene because they just either had never been introduced to it or fundamentally disagreed with it. Well, now the Filson brand just in the course of, of, from when I started talking about it on Roderick on the line, just a handful of years ago where that store still existed and the employees of it were still the ones that had been there for, for decades. And it has all cycled so fast. There's a new Filson store now and it's just exactly like what happened to North face in the 1980s when North face had been this brand of, for mountaineers and hikers and outdoorsmen where every seam was triple sewed and things were just bulletproof. You could wear them for decades. And then all of a sudden everything was made in China. All the seams were glued and they were selling a thousand puffy jackets a day to sorority girls and frat boys. And it was just, it was just all flipped over in a day. No one, who was spending any real time mountaineering was depending on North face gear. And I've told the story of mistakenly depending on a North face bag. Right. So now all of a sudden this Filson stuff has just so fast become fetishized. And I think it's because there's an entire generation of people who are 
who are looking for those kind of tackle shop worlds, but they don't really want to go just as I don't want to go into this weird dusty tackle shop. They want it sanitized and they want it made. They, they don't mind it being expensive. They want to pay a little bit extra so that they can kind of have the fantasy feeling of, of being in an outfitter right. of the old school, but they, but they also want, but they have a really nice clean bathroom with hand sanitizer yeah. in it. Let's see. Yeah. And they want, and they want the, when they get, when they buy the jacket and it gets put into a, a bag that says Filson on it, they're going to bring it home and they're going to leave that bag somewhere. Yeah. Purposefully. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to use it as their shopping bag or something. You know what I mean? And so the new Filson store, I just went into it for the first time about a week ago. I'd been avoiding it. Did it replace the old one or is it in addition to? I replaced it. The old one has, has now been converted into just a manufacturing place. Like they expanded the factory and moved over into this enormous space. I mean, it's a giant store now. And they've expanded their lines, so there are all these things that that just don't, they're not part of their traditional stuff. It's all sort of made for this new clientele. And I was walking around the store very confused, and then I saw my guy, the last guy who's been working there forever, tall, sort of weathered, you know, former guide, and he walks over to me and he's like, what do you think, man? I'm like, I don't know. I'm a little overwhelmed. He's like, I just can't believe it. And we sit there like two like old... He, he liked it or he didn't like it? No. Yeah. We sit there like two old scabs <laughs> talking on the, you know, next to each other on the knee of some hobo going like, can you believe it? He's got new pants. I don't believe it. What happened? He went to rehab. I don't know. Two scabs. That's a weird way to... But, you know, we were just like... <laughs> what the hell is this place? And he walked me around and he showed me all the new stuff. And he's like, look at this, you know, we're, we're consigning bowls now, like fancy pants, hand thrown Japanese style cereal bowls. And there's a leather bag here that's made by, you know, he's like, what is all this garbage? It's all expensive. And he's like, look at the clientele now. And I looked around and everybody's 29 and he just felt like a tackle shop guy that, that on the one hand, I think Filson keeps him there because he's, because he's like a mascot almost. He looks, he looks real. He's like, like, it like increases the authenticity of the place if he's in there. Yeah. He looks real. He is real. And he's just sort of wandering around. I don't think he, I don't think he has to do anything now. He just sort of wanders around and looks like somebody that, has slept outside once in their life. But he doesn't know what he's supposed to do anymore. He's just kind of wandering around going like, well, at least I've got health insurance. And because nobody, you know, none of the new clientele really wants to talk to him. They just want to look at him, look at him across the store. And then they want to talk to a young salesperson. <laughs> so I can't, I don't know if I can recommend the Filson universe anymore i feel very conflicted about it because i well they're there it seems like they're modernizing themselves to keep up with what people want 
them to be. I mean, that's a business has to do that, right? To stay well, a business. Yeah, but but I but I but I feel like the way it happened was that some guys who used to work at J Crew came and bought the brand because the brand had had retail power mm-hmm. in the marketplace. Yeah. And then they did that thing, that Shinola thing, where they're like, don't mess with the brand too much because what people are buying is authenticity, but let's make it really profitable. Let's really sell this stuff to people. And so you're picturing a kind of boardroom of people in very tailored clothes making decisions about how to sell this outdoor gear to a different clientele and all of a sudden there are like three or four different intermediary layers that at least puts me at a distance from the thing that when I used to have that experience where I was like, I'm going into the the guide store and I'm going to listen to these people talk about hunting and fishing and I'm going to save up money and get one of these hunting and fishing coats because I like to walk in the rain. Right. And now, I mean, cause I, I never had pretension that I was a hunting and fishing guide, but now I don't know. I don't know. It's all, it, when you start the, when the, the fetishizing of it happens, I don't know what to, I don't know what my relationship is to it anymore. I, I'm not as, I can't be as vocal about like, hey, you discover this thing. Because it's just, it's, I don't know. I, I don't want to suffer from hipsterism any more than I already do, which is a considerable amount. <laughs> but this is what I mean about being a cliche of myself. Like, I look, there was a time 15 years ago where if you lived in Seattle and you had a beard and you wore horned rim glasses, there was a 90% chance I knew you personally. <laughs> And if I would, even if you're just visiting, yeah, if I would see somebody walking down the street who had a beard and was wearing some kind of horn rim glasses and I didn't know them, I would, there was a 50% chance that I would walk right up to him and say, Hey, what's up? Yeah. Well, uh, where are you from? Like, what's your story? Because it was, because those, um, those identifying, like, those adaptations communicated something very real about what your oh, taste yeah. was, what kind of person you were. And it was, it, it was so specific. You were making such a specific choice that either it was pretty sure that we would be friends or have friends in common or that we were absolutely competing for the exact same space in the world. And there wasn't room enough for both of us. You know what I mean? Like there, there were a few times where I'd be in a bar and there'd be a guy across the way that had horn rim glasses and a beard and we would just stare at each other because, you know, he cuffed his boots over the top of his Danner, you know, he cuffed his cuffs, his jean cuffs over the top of his Danner boots. And I cuffed my jean cuffs over the top of my Danner boots. And it was like, fuck you, man. Yeah. Get out of here. This is my, this is my place. That's right. You're stealing my Moj. Right. But now, you know, you walk around town and it's, it's like the, the one guy that isn't wearing horn room glasses and doesn't have a beard is the, is the, is the remarkable other. 
And I don't know where to locate myself in that because it all kind of it's welled up around me. And there was a, there was a lot of time where people would send me pictures of these guys and be like, looks like this guy is stealing your thing. And I still <laughs> right. get that all the time. People on Twitter are like, look at the, the, when the man in the tree was up in the tree two days ago here in Seattle, a guy, crazy guy climbed up in a tree and was hanging on to the top of this 80 foot tall tree. And every time the, the police or the fire department tried to communicate with him. He would break off a branch and throw it at him. Right. I read this story and he had like a big red sort of, you know, Jacques Cousteau-esque beanie on. Yep. And I got uh, like 20 people sent me this picture like, oh, what are you doing today? Did you get lost on your way to, brr, brr, brr? you know? Uh, and it's like, yeah, right. I get it. I mean, I still, I, I, for for a while, it felt like there were actually times where where I would say like that guy actually is kind of biting my rhymes a little bit. Yeah, but now you can't say that. You know, I walk into the room and I just look like an old guy that's wearing a beard and horn rim glasses, like like the other eighty people in this place. And I don't know. I don't know, Dan. It, it was it, you know it was a little bit of a costume on me, but it was a natural costume. It was the, it was like the stuff that, that made sense. And now I look at people and it feels like absolutely a costume. You but, feel they're, they're the ones in the costume. Well, it just, I mean, they may Well, feel, I mean, I, it, I think it very much, it, it, things have really, really changed, especially in regards to things like, like beards, because I was looking, we were looking through some old pictures. My kids always want to see, you know, like old pictures of me from when I was younger. Cause I think it's really weird that I wasn't always this. Right. And what you know, you or were you a skate rat? N- no, no, I didn't skate or anything like that. I, I sort of, uh, but like pictures of me from high school where like just the sides of my hair are buzzed around like the top and oh, front you had a be, mullet. No, it wasn't a mullet. The, the, the it was the op- opposite of a mullet where like the oh, sides and yeah, the, the top of my hair would be really long, but this like almost like a, an extended Mohawk uh, in a way, but like the sides and back were completely buzzed uh-huh. and like pictures of me in college with like longer hair and like my last Paul, like they love photos of that. And there's a couple pictures of me with a, a great beard back in my twenties mm-hmm. and on and off. I mean, I I've had beards on and off my whole life, starting with like maybe my last year of college. And right. Cause if you sleep in a couple of hours, you've got me, a beard. Yeah. For me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, like really growing in. And I mean, I remember pe- back then people would be like, well, like, why are you, why do you have a beard? Like, it's really weird. I'm like, well, you know, because I like it. I want to grow. My dad had one. You know, why not? Like, well, it, it, you're like, you're 24. Why would you have a beard? Like, what's up with that? Like, you look 70 years old, you know, and now it's a complete opposite. Everyone even and I'm I'm of the opinion that just just like some people shouldn't wear muscle shirts. Mm-hmm. Some guys shouldn't have beards. Interesting. I mean, I welcome everyone who has a beard. Welcome. Join sure, us. you you welcome your beard overlords. Yes, but there there are certain people who maybe should just reconsider it. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it doesn't quite it doesn't quite fill in. 
mm-hmm. the right way. And mm-hmm. that they, maybe they would look, you know, that, but I feel like today it, there's very much a thing of like, it's, it's a style, the way cuffing your jeans would be a style or, you know, the way the horn rim glasses would be a style that, that growing like a big <laughs> Seattle tree man beard is, is also a style. Like this guy up in the beard doesn't look that different from, you know, the guy who poured my coffee a few hours ago, you know, mm-hmm, exactly. And, right. In, in, you know, maybe he's got a few less leaves stuck to his shirt, but you know, there, there are guys right now cultivating this guy's look. Yeah. Carefully. Right. And, but I don't I feel know. like that's the difference that, that a beard used to just say, or that kind of look that you're describing made a statement about like, you were almost in a way back then, like you were kind of like, re- you were rejecting the norms and rejecting the rules and going against society in a way by making this statement of like, this is the side that I'm standing on, you know? But I, the, the thing is, I cannot get inside their heads to know what's motivating them. And so, and this is the this is the what's true about the mainstreaming of anything mm. is that i mean when let's let let me not get too deeply into punk rock <laughs> uh, but but when punk became mass culture it's not that all those people that adopted that mass culture felt like they were conformists every single one of them felt like they were a rebel Oh yeah. And that was what was so confusing about it because it it had become the majority culture. Every single thing was influenced by punk, fashion, music, writing, culture across the board, right. but every single person participating in it still understood punk to be anti-authoritarian, anti-mainstream. And you no matter how much you were no matter how much you said listen if every band is punk then punk (laughs) is meaningless right then no one (laughs) or rebellion is meaningless right right? i mean but no one wanted wanted to hear it no one wants to hear it and so my sense is that every single person who is rocking this particular aesthetic also perceives themselves to be outside yeah. somehow and oh, that yeah. it's all uh, it's it's communicating all of these same things maybe a, a variation of these same things that it communicated to me when i was 25 it's just that it's now you know promulgated to the ho- to the whole and so what is the is there even a distinction? I mean, just because I was an early adopter of the idea that you could be a downtown rock and roll hipster and dress like a, uh, like a outdoor, like someone who worked outdoors in the wood processing field or in the, you know, in the mountain guide field doesn't mean that I was anything more original or authentic, maybe slightly more original, but less, but no more authentic than it just becoming mass fashion. And I, and I, and I picture, I guess I picture the, 
the people from 1960 who were preppy and that preppy communicated so much like class and Mm. belonging to this small group of people who lived in this very rarefied air where all the symbolism of like like a pink shirt or a polo shirt with the collars turned up or a sweater knotted around your neck. (coughs) Those were all like signals that were only readable by people within the, within that narrow world. Right. And you'd walk out into the wider world and the reaction was like, your shirt is pink. What are you? Some kind of girl. (laughs) Right. But within the sort of, you know, prep school microculture, it was, you know, it was not just accepted, but was, but communicated all this extra information. And then sometime in the seventies, Ralph Lauren co-opted that whole aesthetic and not just made it widespread, but made it ubiquitous, right? There's not a person in the world who hasn't at one time or another worn a blue Oxford cloth shirt. It became the uniform of Kinko's. Right, right. And a blue Oxford cloth shirt used to mean something to somebody, to to an to a generation. So whatever that experience was, it's just now happening to me the same way. It's just the Ralph Lorenization of of lumberjack style and so i just have to roll yeah that's the thing you just you have to because it's these styles that (coughs) that once meant something now don't really mean anything in particular they're just that's you know the way that the way that we might have felt of like do i want to want to wear my dark blue jeans today or my light blue jeans today that didn't really make a statement about you as a human being whether you wore the dark ones or the light ones well, well, it very definitely did at a certain point. You're probably right. But see, at mm-hmm. some point that went away, right? So then it just became like, do you want to wear the dark ones? Like, well, I'm going to wear a dark shirt. I'll wear the light jeans. And and so now that doesn't really mean very much of anything. And so neither does dressing like a lumber sexual versus a preppy versus whatever. Yeah, that's true. And it's, it's true. weird. But that's still like, in a way, <laughs> that that's something I kind of miss. Like, you could tell something about a person that's what it is by by the way that they dressed by the statement that that they made by their appearance in a way like you could kind of tell you know i might have something in common with that that person right there because like that particular kind of mega death t-shirt speaks to me because they've got the the you know the dark sleeves and the white it's the baseball style one that's a concert t-shirt so they actually saw Megadeth in concert most likely so maybe Which, that's a conversation point for me to jump yeah, in the conversation point for me would be Megadeth sucks R- maybe and therefore but like, you suck but but you know what like you still kind of knew you knew oh, something yeah, about the person about <laughs> you know what whether you liked it or not but i think i feel like that's really really changed you can tell almost nothing about a person by the way that they dress because you know the the the, the person who looks like you know we're picking on the the sort of bearded person 
Well, I don't, I can't, I can't pick on them because I am them. Yeah, me too. But I exactly, yeah. I mean, when I think we've talked about this quite a bit, which is you can't tell anything about a person by what music they listen to really anymore or really by anything because, because, because the linear progression of culture has stopped. You know, there's no more, there's no more sense that this is in style today and then tomorrow there's going to be something else in style and the thing that was in style yesterday is now out of fashion. Right. We're living in a world where everything is in fashion right. all the time and all music is available to everyone across genres and you can listen to Black Flag and the Eagles <laughs> and see no problem. Right. You know, you have no conflict about the fact that that you were just listening to my war and now you're going to listen to hotel California. And that is fine because all music is fine and everything is fine. And there's no awareness of the fact that for a long time, if you put on black flag, a big part of that was expressing a desire for the Eagles to die in a fire. Mm -hmm. And if you heard some, if you were playing Black Flag and your car pulled up next to somebody whose car was playing the Eagles, you immediately both hated one another. <laughs> and that was true of style too. You, you'd walk in and depending on what you were wearing, everybody in the room kind of knew their, their hot take on you. And, and that's all kind of gone now. And I was part of that happening, right? I was, I was, sometimes I would walk in and I mean, it's not like I would sometimes walk in in a baseball hat that said suicidal tendencies on it. And then the next day walk in wearing a Mickey Mouse ears. But, but I felt free to experiment across many fashion uh, silos. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was not somebody that wore black jeans every day of my life, but like sometimes I would do this and sometimes I would do that. And it was fun, fun to play within all that, all those different languages. But I guess what I, what I didn't anticipate was that, that we would be completely unmoored from all the symbolism, all the cultural symbolism of these different silos. And, and, and I think partly it is because rather than keep on this treadmill of constantly coming up with new stuff, we've 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 stopped that notion of of moving forward and have circled back and are like let's milk everything we can get out of all this amazing stuff we made for the last 100 years right like and and i think a big part of that was somewhere in the 70s we went and kind of lived through the fifties again. And then somewhere in the eighties, we went back and lived through the sixties again. And at a certain point post grunge, there were still people living through the fifties and living through the sixties that were contemporaneous. And now we're just in this, in this place where if you're 16 years old and you want to listen to the sixties music and the fifties music and the eighties music, like nobody's stopping you. And, whatever music we're making now into the future, it just doesn't seem to have any, there's no novelty to it or not enough novelty to say like, it's a new movement. Right. 
right? And Kanye comes out with the record. And he's like, it's the greatest record ever made. And everybody goes, ha ha. And then it immediately disappears or in, it's not like, it's not like a million people rally behind Kanye and they <laughs> march forward behind a new flag. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's another Kanye record. It's another hip hop record. It's another record in a style that we, it's instantly recognizable. It doesn't, it's a, it, maybe it is a good version of it, but it doesn't advance the ball anywhere. And I, and, and at one level I approve of it in the sense that there was so much great music that, that didn't really get a, a proper airing in its day. And now we've reevaluated that stuff so many times that, that, that we appreciate it more fully, everything we made. It just scares me that, that it doesn't seem like we're making new stuff in that, like culturally, right? We're in a kind of eddy right now. And, and I'm sure there will be another breakthrough. It's just a strange time to be living in where it, where it feels like, and I think the, the breakthrough will probably come as a result of VR or AR, right? Where it won't be a question of now we're, now we're all dressing in uh, gold lame jumpsuits because it's the fashion. And every, right. if you're not in a gold lame jumpsuit, then you're just a dummy, but it'll be the separation of people that are living with augmented reality technology <coughs> and the people that aren't. And it will be such a, it'll be such a, a new leap that will feel like it transcends fashion because AR will, it will have so much, it will be such an insider thing at first and it will be such a, um, set you apart so much that it will have the effect of being a fashion but with all these other ramifications and we'll, and we'll transcend this narrow thing of like, what bands do you like? What, what t-shirt are you wearing? And be into this other thing of like, which apps are currently dominating your, your view right. of the city as you walk around. Are you walking around in a Snapchat reality? Are you walking around in a, in a Tinder reality? Are you walking around in a, in a uh, Twitter reality? And that will all be kind of, it will supersede what clothes you're wearing. And that may already be happening to a certain extent. I was talking to somebody the other day who's really into Snapchat. And she was saying like, yeah, I never got into Twitter. I was like, never got into Twitter. I still spend three hours a day on Twitter. Yeah. She's like, yeah, I just Snapchat with my friends. And I'm like, explain why Snapchat is cool. And she laughed and was like, explain why Snapchat is cool. Self-explanatory why Snapchat is cool. She sat and walked me through. She was like, look, I send this thing out and then these people look at it and then they, they send a thing out and then it goes away. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I'm not. Is the dress blue and blue and black or is the dress white and gold? Like, I don't have any 
I don't have any foothold there. And it seems so strange. It's not, it's not like I'm not adopting new technologies. It just seems like it's, it's fulfilling something in the people that like it that I don't, I'm not desperate to have fulfilled, right? I don't want, I don't want pictures that I take to disappear. You know, and I, I think you're making a very interesting point that I haven't heard made and I haven't thought of either as I've been kind of thinking about Snapchat because not that long ago, a friend of mine who's, I guess he's about 10 years, maybe even more than that, younger than me. And he, he spent a while talking to me about Snapchat and talking to me about how great it was and how it's, it's useful for connecting with friends. It's fun to use with friends, but also it can, you know, if you're like building a business, it can be useful to, to interact with people and, and he, he kind of sold me, like he sold me on it. And then he's like, just, you know, try it, try it for a week. Try it for a week. It'll change, like change you. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, you the, know what? This, like the, this girl said the exact same thing to me. Just try it for a week. I tried it for a week, John. Mm-hmm. And I hated it even more at the end of the wow. week. Wow. And I mean, I really went into it. Like I'm going to have fun with this. I'm going to use this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right you know, of like sharing lots of little things. And I just, I, and I like, I, maybe I'm at that point now where I'm, I'm crossing a threshold where I can no longer, you know, think of myself in the way of like, I love all the new hip, cool technology, whatever it is, when it comes out, I'm like the first person to love it and use it and embrace it. And I'm going to explain it to, you know, all the elders that maybe I'm not, I'm not that guy anymore that like mm-hmm. the new cool thing may come out and I may say, you know what? This is not for me. That's that thing that is out that five years ago or three years ago or whatever that I might've been like, not only am I all about it, it was made with me in mind for mm-hmm. me. And I'm going to explain it to you because I already, I'm, I'm a, it is old hat for me. This thing that's mm-hmm. been out for almost an hour. Like I've been using it for the full hour. I'm the, I'm the resident expert on this thing. You're talking about grinder when it first came out. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, like, and, and now stuff comes out. I'm like, you know, Nest doesn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Snapchat doesn't appeal to me. Um, and you know what, like I've, it's, it's not because I like, I look at it and I sound not for me. Like I really gave it a try. I really wanted to try it. I really wanted to like it because like, I, I know there's, you know, and and one of the things he said to me is like 16 million users or 160 million, whatever the number is. He's like, they're using it. They're out there. That's an audience, you know? And so I was like, yeah, right. Like, I, okay. You know, maybe (laughs) there's something for me there, but. I like the what you the the point that really sticks with me that you said is like I don't want to take a picture and then have it go away. I I pride myself on having longer than a 30 second attention span because mm-hmm. most of the people that I know uh and and that I admire have the ability to to focus on things and talk about things for extended periods of time and just to stick in, in <coughs> a conversation about one thing and let it naturally move into other. Like that's, I like that. And maybe yeah, that but, makes me old fashioned. Like if I take a picture and it's good, 
and I share it. Like, I want to know that thing. Oh, you know what? I took a picture of this thing six months ago and I posted it here. It's still there. Yeah. I like, that's the beauty of the internet. <laughs> you know, it, it is as much as it can be a bad thing. It can also be a good thing in that things stick around. I, I don't, I don't want them to go away. I but want I them to this, stay. I think this may be the law uh, the uh, world war one problem of every time there's a new war, the generals are still fighting the last war. Mm. Right, which is that our generation had a lot of punditry about the internet and technology because all this stuff would come up and we would say, oh, you know, the ne- like future generations are going to live their entire lives so documented, right? We're always applying our, our interpretation, our standard, and assuming that future generations are going to share our values and do, and the technology is going to change, but they are going to keep doing what we did. Right. And we came up at a time when taking a photograph was a sort of a big deal. Mm -hmm. And the photograph was a lasting thing that you put into an album or into a box. And so when photographs became cheap and easy, we took a lot of them, but we saved them in the same way right in virtual albums and we assumed that going forward into the future ad infinitum all that would happen is that people would just have more and more and more documentation and we've talked about this at length pundits across the world have oh these poor kids they're going to live their whole lives completely there you know there will be no mystery they'll be documented every note of it but what it turns out is that this generation immediately behind us that has had in, in, access to the internet their whole lives and access to digital photos, all of a sudden Snapchat comes along. It makes no sense within the context of this idea that photographs are things to be saved. But it makes perfect sense to a generation that's like, oh my God, there are so many fucking photographs and, and right. so much, so much documentation all i want to do is just communicate with friends i have the ability now to do that through photograph and video right but i don't want it saved it's just to, it's just to do it's just like talking on the phone right which but, is gone right nobody talks yeah, on the phone. no but there were no recordings of our phone calls nothing lasted back when we talked to each other That's a great point phone right so this is just a new style and they don't want, they intentionally don't want it to last. They just don't think of photographs in the same way. And, and effectively, they are returning to a more natural state, which is that not everything does want to be documented. It doesn't mean that they're going to stop using their phones. They're just kind of almost, they're duplicating our, actually closer to our world which was, yeah, you save the photos that are good, that matter, but you, you're actually living in a world that's more immediate. And we're overlaying this whole old man trip on them. Like, what are you talking, you know, like I took that photo. It's something that should be, be stored in a silo in a salt mine in Salt Lake City forever, <laughs> forever. And, you know, and they just shrug and laugh. And so all of a sudden you start to, 
prognosticate into the future and you're like, we have no idea how this technology is going to be used. Our punditry is meaningless because we're applying effectively 19th century value. Right. To technology that's going to be used in ways that... Even maybe we think we're too important, like my yeah. photos. My photos are very good. And, yeah, and right. They're, they're really important. And these are my photos are the kind of photos that people, <laughs> people will want to see and, and to save, not just me, but everyone. Sure. So what we're not talking about is like the fact that what the technology is effectively going to do is change the nature of ego, mm. change the nature of identity. And not everybody is, I mean, Michael Stipe's Instagram is a perfect example of a guy, of a dinosaur, right? Right. Who's like taking pictures of himself reflexively over and over and failing to recognize that the interesting element of that photo is not him. It's Bono. Um, he is, he, we know he's there. Right. If, if it was a, pic, a full face picture of Bono and half a face of Michael Stipe, it would be no there would be no less Michael Stipe in it. Mm -hmm. There would just be more Bono. Yeah. And what what Stipe isn't realizing is like to center himself in the photo. Actually sort of makes there be less Stipe. Right, you just you care less about the right. stipe in it because you're looking over at his over his shoulder, trying to see what is what is ostensibly the reason for the picture, and so he's got this yeah. he's got this old ego, right, old version of ego, and now I mean, so so my friend was showing me Snapchats, and she would she take a picture of me and post it. And then she's like, okay, now watch, we're going to get a lot of replies. And she doesn't have, you know, she's got 14 people right. that she's communicating with regularly. All 14 of them send a photo of themselves making a duck face. Right. Reacting to the photo that, the video that she just put up. Yeah. And every one of them is like, hi, oh my God, nice to see you. Look at him or whatever. And then they're gone. And I'm like, what was, what the hell was all that? Right. She's like, that's Snapchat. And then she sent a thing like, oh, oh my God, hello. And it's in some ways like completely ego driven, but also completely kind of egoless. Like they're replying to one another as a way of giving each other praise and strokes. And, and um, it just seems alien to me. But what is what could be more alien than this thing that we've talked about before was like remember when you used to sit with the phone crooked between your ear and your shoulder and talk to a friend for two and a half hours where neither of you really said anything the entire time it's like are you still there yeah um um uh boy it was really funny at school today wasn't it yeah uh you know like two hours later and you're still, you're just on there to be together. You're exchanging no right. information. You're just on there to, to feel supported and feel connected. So I, you know, I think what it's going to spell out for us is what are the, what are the core human needs? And I think we already know what they are. And through all these different technologies, people will constantly find ways to get back to first principles, which are, do you love me? 
Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Ah, 